There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. And Father, that's what we're singing of. It's what we are remembering. It's what we're here to worship you for this morning, that that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your one and only precious Son. Lord, as a sacrifice for our sin to lay down his life, the, the innocent one for the guilty, the spotless one for the ones who were nothing but stained. And Father, we're grateful for that this morning, that, that your power, that your grace, that your mercy, your forgiveness is stronger than all of our sin and all of it put together. Then when Christ went to the cross, he paid for every last bit. Father, that allows those of us who believe to stand before you. Father, though still broken and messy and, uh, and making our own way through life in this world, yet at the same time we can stand before you forgiven and free. Lord, free from fear, free from condemnation and guilt, because we've been given, your word says, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray that as we go to your word now and we dig into what it says, that we would listen for the voice of your spirit reminding us of these things and more. Father, that we'd understand it's not about listening to what the preacher says, whoever that preacher may be. Father, it's not about our our points and our insights and our big ideas. It's about Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead and making sure that he always and ever and only is the main thing. So, Father, as we open your word now, I pray that you give us ears to hear and and hearts to receive. That by the power of your spirit, you guide us in truth, because your word is truth and there's nothing like it. Father, that by the power and presence of your spirit, you'd guard us from error and misunderstanding. We do not want to be led astray. Father, I pray that your spirit would deliver us, even in this moment, if we haven't done so already, to confess, to repent, to deliver us from apathy and pride and, and even expectations, Father, or indifference. Just take it all away so that we get to see Jesus. Father, for the next little while, may we see Jesus clearly. As we study your word, may we see Jesus only, that we might leave singing his praise and worshiping him, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, I will invite you to grab a Bible. Hopefully you have one with you this morning. Thanks. And turn in in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 10, as we continue where we left off last Sunday, right in the middle of of chapter 10, in this extraordinary story here of the Apostle Peter and and his growing understanding and and really the church's growing understanding of what it means to to know and then to proclaim Jesus Christ. And I have to say, I love what what Nate and Rochelle um, said. And once again, just another one of those things we don't design. God does it in, uh, in, in just talking about their, their mission, uh, Reach Beyond, and, and uh, we have uh, followed and prayed for Nate and Rochelle for years, and we just love them, and, and had, were aware of this change in your missions organization to Reach Beyond, but I didn't know the reason behind that, and, and, and you express it, it's about reaching beyond, you know, lines and culture barriers and all these sorts of things, maybe where the gospel hasn't gone before, and that is so cool, because that is exactly what we're going to talk about in God's Word today, and as we get into it, I think you're going to see that, so once again, we can be sure that whatever we get right, whatever we get wrong, God God is orchestrating what we're doing here today, and we're going to trust him to show not what I want us to hear, not what I have to show you from God's word, but that through it, he will speak to us what he wants us to hear. So we're in Acts chapter 10, and it's a rather lengthy passage we're going to look at. We're going to dig into it in parts. So have your Bible open and ready, and you don't need to turn there, but you may want to make note as we begin this morning as well of Matthew chapter 16. 
Because in Matthew chapter 16, of course, one of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples, and as always, we can assume just in our mind's eye that Peter was front and center uh, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 16, if you know, if you've heard the story, it's probably familiar to you, to some perhaps it isn't, but Jesus asked his disciples, he'd been with them for a while, and he said, guys, I have a question for you. Who do people say that I am? You've been around, you've heard word on the street, uh, you know the way people talk. Who do the people say that I am? And one gives one answer, and one gives another, and, and, and they're sort of firing these responses back to Jesus, and then he says, okay, hold on a second, now let's get personal. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as always, first to respond, says in Matthew 16, 19, or Matthew 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, bingo, right on. And, and he blesses Peter for that declaration. He says, on that declaration of who I am, the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. And then he said something very interesting, and I don't think we always give a lot of attention to what he said next, but it's in Matthew 16, 19. This is what Jesus then said to Peter, and we presume it would have applied to the other disciples as well. He said, therefore, I, here's his statement, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And and for whatever else that declaration might mean, and I think it means all sorts of stuff that I don't have any idea what he's talking about there, but one of the things I do know that Jesus must have been saying to Peter in that statement that whatever else is involved with it, um, but that that was essentially to become Peter and the other disciples' assignment now for the rest of their lives, because as we, if you think about it, as we've gone through the book of Acts, this is exactly what we have seen Peter preeminently doing, taking, as it were, the keys to the kingdom of, the hev of heaven, that's the gospel, and opening doors of opportunity for people who had not yet heard it. And if you don't believe me, just think about where we've been, Acts chapter 2. Peter, he is preaching the gospel for the very first time, the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. It says he stands up in Jerusalem among his fellow Jews, as it were, he has the keys to the kingdom, the gospel in his hand. He preaches the gospel to the people, and on that day, 3,000 of his own fellow Jews are, are saved. A door has been opened for the gospel. You fast forward to Acts chapter 8, you find then Peter once again, the keys to the kingdom are in his hand, metaphorically speaking, as he's in a small company of fellow believers, and they take the gospel, not just to the Jews, but they move into the region, as Jesus told them, of Samaria. Now, Samaritans were people of Jewish ancestry and Gentile blood intermingled as well. They were Jews whose ancestors had intermarried with Canaanites and pagan people, and as such, full-blooded Jews like Peter looked down on them. They despised them. But here we have Peter, Jesus hands him the key again and says, take the gospel out to the Samaritans. And in Acts chapter 8, you see that many Samaritans begin to be saved. And the circle of the church continues to grow. Now we're in Acts chapter 10. The keys of the kingdom are in Peter's hand once again. And he was given the opportunity this time, again, this is in keeping with Jesus' assignment to the disciples of what they were to do with the gospel message, and he is taking it to the Gentiles, those of no Jewish ancestry whatsoever, essentially the rest of the world. And what you need to know about what we're going to look at here is this is the first time the gospel had truly ever been preached to the Gentiles in history. Peter preaches it to the Jews. He preaches it to the Samaritans. Now he's preaching it to the Gentiles for the very first time. And, and, and the scene, the situation started, we saw last Sunday in the first 23 verses of Acts 
chapter 10, we saw a, what we called a divinely orchestrated appointment of Peter with a Roman centurion, or it was being prepared, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And, and in fact, as you may recall, I suggested to you last Sunday that this is one of the most significant stories anywhere in the book of Acts because it's given more ink. It covers more ground than any other single story anywhere in this book. It's the longest story recorded for us in Acts. Its details are also so very significant that Luke, the author of Acts, tells us the story three times over within the content of this narrative. And what are we learning in the Bible? When God repeats something, pay attention to it. And this is so important, he tells us the story three times. Longest narrative in the book of Acts. But what we're going to discover as we walk through this passage is that while Peter was in fact ready to use the keys once again, to preach the gospel to those who hadn't heard it. This time, you could say the lock didn't turn quite so easily. That this was not necessarily an easy door to open because to take the gospel to the Gentile world, to non-Jewish people, the non-covenant people of God in all of its fullness and to truly bring them into the family along with everyone else who knew Christ, there were, at least by my count, three barriers to belief that had to be done away with. There were three barriers to belief among the Gentiles that had to be abolished if they were going to truly come into the family and be followers along with the rest of Jesus Christ. So let's dig into the story. We're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to see these three barriers and and how they were handled. The first one is in verses 23 through 33. Tell you right up front what it is. It is the barrier number one of inappropriate distinctions. The first barrier Peter in taking the gospel to the Gentiles came up against was a barrier of inappropriate distinctions between people. Grab your Bible, Acts 10, 23, going to read down to verse 33 where this is what the word of God says. We're actually going to pick it up in the middle of verse 23. The first half of verse 23 tells us that this man Cornelius had sent messengers to Peter. They said, come to Cornelius. Peter, verse 23, invites them in, gives them lodging for the night. Here's where the story resumes. On the next day. He, Peter, got up and went away with them, three messengers who were sent by Cornelius, and some of the brethren, these would be fellow Jewish believers from Joppa, accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, stand up, I too am just a man, and He talked with him and entered and found many people assembled, and he said to them, Peter begins to speak, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or even visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask now, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius, here's the second telling of his story. Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered before God, therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the tanner by the sea, so I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, We are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You know, I've heard it said more than once, and the more I think about it, 
the more truth I think there is to it. That when we as believers get home to heaven, we are going to be surprised. We're going to be surprised on one hand by people who aren't there that we thought would be. And we're going to be surprised by some people who are there who we thought wouldn't be. That that the kingdom of heaven is going to maybe look a little bit different than we just looking with physical eyes on one, one another uh, may think going in. And, and, and I don't say something like that to put a knot in your stomach to think I'm going somewhere weird with the scripture and what the gospel does or, or doesn't do, but simply as a way to realize or, or to draw our attention to the fact that that's exactly the sort of thing that's going on here in what we just read. Because what, what the Lord has been teaching Peter to do really throughout this chapter and, and, and in, the, in the verses and, and stories leading up to, to it is the Lord has been teaching Peter to draw circles or for his whole life, he'd been told to draw lines, spiritually speaking. The Lord was teaching Peter to draw circles, where his whole life he had been taught formerly to draw lines. Because remember, the whole crux of the story here, the whole reason it's even here, is, is, is that Peter on one hand is a Jew. He is a full-blooded descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's kept the law. He said that last Sunday. He's been a faithful worshiper all along. But Cornelius was a Gentile. And for these two men, men's entire lives, they had been told firmly, never the twain shall meet. Jews don't associate with Gentiles. Gentiles don't associate with Jews. We're talking Hawkeyes and Cyclones here, people. We're talking Cubs and White Sox here, people. These are people who do not know and have not been taught how to get along. In other words, what Peter and Cornelius had both been told their whole lives It's always the Cubs, I'm telling you, right there. (laughs) These are people who've been told their whole lives certain distinctions must be maintained. Certain lines must be drawn. Certain rules and, and expectations must be upheld, except for one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ acknowledges no such distinctions whatsoever. None. What they had been taught had not come from the Lord. And, and Peter was learning, as I su- suggest to you, Peter was learning this lesson. And I think, let's give him credit, Peter gets, he gets knocked on a lot. He was learning this lesson quickly, because look at how he responded, verses 25 and 26, to Cornelius' greeting. It says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Now, if there was ever a moment a Jew in that day would savor, it would be the sight of not just a Roman, but a Roman centurion, a man of authority at his feet. Oh, sweet justice, right? Turn the tables. This is what Peter had been taught. But what does he say in verse 26? Peter raised him up. You get this idea of Peter, you know, and we know he was assertive. Raising him up, taking him. saying, stand up. I too am just a man. I'm no different than you. Don't you fall down at my feet. Treat me like I'm somebody exalted or special. I'm just a man like you. And then look at his opening remarks to the crowd, the congregation gathered for him, Cornelius' Gentile family and friends. In verse 28, he said to them, here's his opening line, you yourselves know how unlawful it is. Now by unlawful, it's not something that was written in the Old Testament scriptures. It was laws that the rabbis had built up around the Old Testament scriptures that had been sort of absorbed or treated by the Jews as, as equal to the word of God, but they weren't. Nevertheless, that was their tradition, how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to to associate with a foreigner or even visit him. Yet what has God shown me, gang? He's shown me I shouldn't call any man unholy or unclean. We've got to stop playing these games. 
We have to stop drawing these lines. Said that many, many years ago when Mahatma Gandhi was a, a young man, he was studying, he was from India, of course, and, and he was studying in England, getting his college education. And the story is told that, that when he was at that season of his life, he was fascinated with the Christian faith and seriously considered becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And as he was wrestling through those questions and, and, and the, the things that he wanted to resolve and, and decide, okay, what, what am I really going to do? Who am I really going to follow? It says that one Sunday, true story, he, he sought out a Christian church in, in England where he was living because he wanted to go find a pastor, a church member, a believer, somebody who could answer his questions. But as he tells the story in his autobiography, when he arrived at the, the door of the church that morning, there was an usher standing there and he said, you're not welcome here. You worship with your people and we'll worship with ours. And Gandhi says, simply, I walked away that morning and never went back. And he quotes the, the, the quote from his autobiography, says, he says, I decided in that moment that if Christians have caste systems too, I might as well remain a Hebrew. Not interested. If Christians play the same games of better and worse, of valuable and unva- invaluable as, as anyone else. And I, man, I think, how, could, how different would that story have been? Imagine the difference. If that usher had understood what was finally dawning on Peter here, which is this, that the gospel, there's only one line the gospel of Jesus Christ draws. There's only one distinction that Jesus Christ himself acknowledges. Either you believe in him or you don't. You are either a believer in Jesus Christ or you are not. There are no other lines. There are no other distinctions. Because the message of the Bible, and this is what Peter understood and what he was preaching, is we're all born, in, and this is the point really of, of, the, of dealing with this first obstruction, this first barrier, is we're all born in the same fix. We are all sinners. Some of us are better at it than others, but we're all in the same boat. We are all sinners who've come short of the glory of God. And what Peter was learning and beginning to, to express in his preaching is that any other distinctions, they just muddy up the waters. They just confuse the message, and they must be abolished. We're all sinners in need of salvation. So that's the first barrier that Peter runs up against. And, and I'd say, based on what we've read so far, he kind of just blew right through it. He said, we're not going to play this game, as I said, anymore. But then he encountered a second one. And if the first one may sound like, well, I don't know if I really, I don't know if I really deal with that one in my daily life, this is one that we may that may be more relevant or apparent to us as we walk through life. And it was the barrier, the second one Peter came up against, was the barrier of incomplete understanding. An incomplete understanding of the gospel. Look again at your Bible. I'm going to start reading in verse 34 and take it down through verse 43. It says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, John the Baptist. You know of Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. 
But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, everyone, receives the forgiveness of sins. I think it's really helpful at this point of the story because we've taken the story and, and, and we're looking at it in parts. Before we go any further, to, to take a step back and remember what we learned about Cornelius last Sunday. We learned it in the first two verses of the chapter. Look at him in your Bible. Because what we learned there about this man Cornelius, according to verse 1, of course, he's, he's a Gentile. He's a non-member of, of the Jewish race, the Jewish religion and people. But not only that, he was a centurion in the Roman army. That meant he was a man of authority, stature, of significant income. And and that meant he was among the oppressors of God's people. The Romans were occupying the Holy Land, making life difficult for the Jews. But in verse 2, what we also learned about him, and and I told you, I said, I don't know how he managed to pull this off, but he did. He was at the same time a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And, and the way I summed that up for us, I said, what that meant is if Cornelius were to walk in here this morning, we say, there goes a good religious man. There's a fine, upstanding citizen. He goes to church, and he gives, and he prays, and, and he does all the right things, and he does unto others, and, and everything that we would expect a, a God-fearing man, whatever that means, to do. It's described that way here. But what Peter does in, in what we just read this morning is he clues us in even further not only on Cornelius, but really on, on all the guests who were gathered there in his house. And here's what we learned about him. Three quick things. First of all, these are people who knew who Jesus was. That's what it says in verse 38. Peter said to them, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You know who Jesus is. Cornelius, family and friends. Not only that, We're told, Peter tells us in his preaching, that they were familiar with the the news of his death and resurrection. Peter said, we're witnesses, verse 39, of the things he did in Jerusalem. How they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. He didn't stop and explain, he's just assuming they knew that that had happened. And not only that, that God, verse 40, raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. So these were people who knew who Jesus was, they'd heard of his death and his supposed resurrection, Furthermore, it seems that those to whom Peter was speaking, Cornelius and his Gentile gathering of, of people, understood that the guys like Peter and, and the people he hung around found the whole thing pretty convincing. I mean, they were like all in on, on this story of Christ and his death and resurrection. Because what does Peter say? He says, he didn't appear to everybody, but he did appear to us. Witnesses, verse 41, chosen before him by God. We ate with him and, and drank with him after he arose from the dead and Peter's message, listen, Peter's message is this, it's true, (laughs) it's true, it really happened, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he died, and, and he rose from the dead, but at the same time, what Peter's trying to impress on those listening to him is that there is a vast, literally an infinite chasm of difference between simply knowing those things and believing them, there's a difference between the two. And I think before we sort of dig into the the text any further, we might do well to pause and realize there's a whole lot of people like that in in the world in which we operate today. 
in your workplace, in your school, maybe in your own home, extended family. There are a whole lot of people like the, the gathering at Cornelius' house. Some of them are good and religious, some not so much. But to put it differently or to maybe try to put it a little bit more succinctly, what Peter outlined in verse 38 is exactly, listen, what countless unsaved people believe. Unsaved people. What did he say in verse 38? He said, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. You know God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went about doing good and healing people oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You know people who know that information. They look at Jesus, good religious man, founder of the Christian faith, kind of guy we should model our lives after. The world would be a better place if we were all like Jesus. Surely God was with him, man of influence and, 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 and a message of love and grace and hope and all this stuff. There's a lot of people who acknowledge that information. They know the facts. But as we said last week, that while they may be sincere, they're sincerely short of true salvation. They have knowledge and yet lack faith. And I don't know, maybe one of them is you. You know the facts, but, but what you lack is, is faith. So please, look again at how Peter frames his message, verses 34 and 35. How he, the context in which he He conveyed this information. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I I understand now God doesn't show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. In other words, anybody, anywhere, whatever they've done, the color of their skin, uh, the, the background in which they were raised, the mistakes and sins they've committed along the way, it doesn't matter. If they want to know Jesus Christ, they are free to come to him. No barriers, no distinctions, no lines. Anybody who wants to come to Jesus is free to do so. The point there is simply this, that in the same way all of us are sinners, Peter's message is Jesus died for us all. All of us are sinners, and Christ died for all. But what he also said in verse 43 is that it's only effective for those who believe. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, say believes in him, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. You say, cool, what's the difference? What's the difference between knowing and and believing? Because right now at this moment, you got me a little rattled, and I've been there. (laughs) How do I know if I, the difference between knowing and actually believing? Well, it's an old illustration. You've probably heard it before. Maybe you haven't. I still think it's a good one. That's why it's stuck around. Think of it metaphorically, symbolically in terms of this stool. Every Sunday you see me sit on this thing. Say, it works for him. Seems sturdy. Seems reliable. If I was a preacher, I'd want that stool too. Seems like it does the job. It holds his weight. He, uh, He's found it helpful. It's not too bad. It might fit in just fine. That's a respectable piece of equipment right there. And it works for Aaron. There's a difference between simply acknowledging the facts and taking the step of entrusting your full weight to it. And faith in Christ works the same way. It's possible to look at the person of Jesus Christ. There's a good man. 
He, he was a man of God, and, and, and he did wonderful things for people. And, and, and boy, if we lived our life more like Jesus, that'd be great. Here's the question. Have you entrusted the full weight of your sin to him? Have you trusted him with your life? He's not just good for the whole world. He is enough for me. Has the full weight of your life and your sin and your path and your story been entrusted to Jesus Christ? Belief means trusting he's strong enough to hold you and to save you. You must confess your sin, your sin, not the sins of the world, yours, and trust him to forgive it. You must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved, not simply acknowledge that he's a pretty good guy. Peter's dealing with that barrier here. He's abolishing that barrier. He's saying, guys, you have all the facts. What are you going to do with them? Because eternity is at stake. How about you? And there's one more barrier that Peter encountered. And this is really a barrier that, that strictly applies to those of us who, who are already there. We have entrusted our full weight to the strong arms of Jesus Christ. We've entrusted him with our sin in our lives and we know we've been saved. And, and that's the third and final barrier that, that has to be abolished if the gospel's gonna get through, if everyone who desires to believe can, can come to know Jesus Christ. And, and the third barrier that has to be abolished is the barrier of our own inability to keep the message simple. Our own inability as followers of Jesus Christ to keep the message simple. Because here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an infinitely and eternally profound message. I believe with all my heart that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we won't have figured it out yet. There will be stuff about it we don't get. The love of God that sent his own son, the death of Christ, the depth of sin that was paid, what he suffered on the cross. There's just some stuff about that, that, that eternity upon eternity, we're just not going to plumb the depths of it because it's all wrapped up in the love and the holiness and the grace and the mercy of God. We'll never be able to figure it out. I mean, we will love it, but we won't figure it all out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an infinitely and eternally profound message. It is also profoundly simple profoundly simple. Because the message of the gospel is this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe this and you will be saved. It is not any more complicated than that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, rose from the dead. Believe this and you will be saved. And, and if you look one final time at the end of Acts chapter 10, you'll see that's that's all that Peter got out of his mouth before God stepped in and interrupted the sermon. I think Peter had three more points to go and Jesus didn't let him preach him because this is what happened. It says verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And so Peter answered, surely... No one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as us, can he? And so he ordered them, Peter did, these Gentile now converts, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him if he'd hang around with them a few more days. Now the funny thing about these five verses, not in a good way, is that for the past 2,000 years, the content of these verses have been used among other things as points of disagreement and theological debate, division among 
otherwise fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Through the 2,000 years since, since these events took place, Peter preaches to the Gentiles, and this happened. People have gone to these verses uh, to, to begin arguments with one another among believers about whether you've got to be able to speak in tongues to show you're truly saved, whether, whether the water of baptism is absolutely necessary to get into heaven. If you don't get baptized, you might not make it. And even something as silly as whether or not you should be baptized, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or as Peter says here, if you should be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. People have thought about this stuff for years, none of which is the point, none of it, and all of which goes to show how incredibly skilled we are at complicating the message of the gospel. Time and time again, because all these verses are meant to do, there's one reason they're here, one fundamental reason to authenticate the faith of these Gentiles, that they had the real thing, that they were all in the family. Because, and you could do this this week if you want to, if you're interested. Take, take these verses home. Take the final five verses of Acts chapter 10 where the Gentiles believe in Jesus Christ and set them down next to the end of Acts chapter 2 where the Jews first believe. You know what you'll find? Almost word for word, it's exactly the same. Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit shows up. People believe, they start speaking in tongues, they get baptized, they're in the family. That's it. It's almost it. And that's why it says these, these Jews with Peter, they were amazed because it was happening the same way for them as, as it had for them uh, years earlier. Evidently, it's the same thing. The barrier has been abolished. Simply put, what's, what's being shown to us here is just evidence of new life, new life in Christ. Audible, physical, objective demonstration that these folks were now in the family. And the point is simply, it's all God's doing. It's God's business. God saves. All of us have sinned. Christ died for all, God does it all. You come to Christ and you believe. And so for those of us here this morning who already know Christ, the application is really, really, really straightforward. Just keep the gospel simple. The gospel alone is enough to save. It is sufficient to save anyone. Recently, I heard somebody say, I don't know where I read it, heard it, but, but and I wish I could credit who, maybe it was one of you, I don't know. But somebody said to me recently, they said, it is not our preaching that makes the gospel effective. It's the gospel that makes our preaching effective. Same goes for witnessing. It's not your presentation that makes the gospel effective. It's the gospel that makes your witnessing effective. Because Paul says, it's the gospel that's the power of Christ to salvation. It's not my ability to spit the words out in the proper order. It's not. It's Christ. So focus on Christ and keep it simple. God will take care of everything else. And that's why the big idea of the message this morning, not real complicated once again. The big idea of, of what we've looked at here in Acts chapter 10, I think is simply this, don't mess with the message. Don't mess with the message. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sin and rose from the dead Believe this and you will be saved. Father, may we take that message. Father, forgive us even in our hearts for saying, isn't there something else? Isn't he going to tell me what to do with it? Aren't you going to show us how? No, that is the message. Father, and I pray that we would take it to heart. Some here this morning have never truly believed on Christ and been saved. Oh God, how we plead for them in this moment, at this second, to surrender and say, Christ is enough for me. And Father, for those of us who believe, 
especially those of us who stand up and act like we know what we're talking about. Father, forgive us for complicating the message and for drawing lines where you've drawn circles. Father, for dispensing information without the passion of the cross behind it. Father, teach us to to trust that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone is enough. And then to speak it to those we know and we love who still need it. And trust you will do what must be done. In Jesus' name, amen.